Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 10th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Allowing people to drink and dine indoors once again has generated so much conversation that it's almost hard to believe that it's actually less than three weeks ago when pubs and restaurants reopened their doors to customers. Decision of the 19th of October 2021, government agreed that the remaining aspects of the hospitality, entertainment and nighttime economy would reopen with a full range of protective measures in place and the wide uh, and a robust implementation of the COVID-19 pass. Three weeks on and some problems still need addressing. The Department of the Taoiseach has hosted a meeting today with the hospitality and live events sector and this was attended by officials from the Ministers uh, from the Department of um, Enterprise, Trade and Employment and the Department of Health. It has been emphasised in advance of that meeting and continuously that their cooperation is critical if we're to avoid a further deterioration in the epidemiological situation. This was emphasised strongly again today and it's clear that the sector's representative groups are very conscious of their role in driving compliance and reinforcing the behaviours that that will help to keep us all safe. But if they're flaunting the rules... Are any of us safe? Government's aim has been to allow as many businesses as possible to reopen in the safest possible way. And this is why we need certain regulations in place and also robust guidance to assist businesses to reopen safely and, importantly, to stay open. Central to these guidelines is a commitment to adhere to best practice in infection prevention control measures, which are necessary to protect individuals and society, as well as supporting our continued progress towards a full return to the operation of various sectors. Well, yes, or... Yes, within reason, or that seems to be how some publicans feel. 34% of pubs didn't check properly for COVID certs in October. And they might argue there's only so much that you can do when you're really busy. Compliance with these measures should not be considered best practice, but rather the minimum standard required to protect our communities. 
Hildegard Nocton, the Minister was speaking in the Shannon yesterday. Let's speak now to the Chief Executive of the Vintners Federation, Porik Cribben, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you. Thanks, as always, for joining us on the programme this morning, Porik. This is a problem. It's one that you recognise and it is a small few, a, a, a sizeable few, a sizeable minority, if you like, 34% of pubs in October who weren't checking properly for COVID certs. And you came out of that meeting saying it was cordial, the government was talking about a media campaign. I think you were talking about people uh, naming and shaming places that don't ask for these certs on social media and stuff. Uh, People are being told to walk out and don't return uh, if that is what's happening. Uh, But people are very unhappy, aren't they? And you're saying as well that there should be a credible threat of enforcement. What does that mean or what does that look like to you? Uh, good morning, Michael. Uh, I think the first thing to say, just in relation to the 34% that you, you spoke about, uh, it was indicated to us yesterday, because there was a lot of talk in the media prior to our meeting yesterday, that you know there was a high level of non-compliance. Uh, the 34% was, uh, it wasn't actually from the regulatory authorities, there was some research that was done. Uh, and it was done by the ESRI, to, wasn't it? By the ESRI yeah. prior prior to the twenty second of October. When I when I have to admit, I'd say guards guards dropped. Uh, there are there are uh, data available from the regulatory authorities. Uh, the two regulatory authorities that carry out the inspections are the HSE and the HSA. The HSE have done uh, over two and a half thousand. Uh, sorry, about two thousand three hundred. Uh, apologies. Uh, inspections. They have found a seven percent non-compliance rate. Uh, the HSA have done a lesser number, uh, and they have uh, found a four percent non-compliance rate. But look, the bottom line from our point of view is any level of non-compliance is not satisfactory because it, it's a critical issue for the sector. It's a critical issue for those and an unfair issue for those who are actually doing the job properly. Mm. They're, at, they're, they're, they're at a disadvantage. We have been very consistent, not just in the last three weeks, but from when, when pubs first reopened in July last year, not this year, July of last year, that the, 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 the public health advice is paramount, number one. Mm. Number two, that people should comply with it. And number three, which is important, that if there are outlets not complying with it, they should be fully sanctioned. We actually last year looked for additional powers for the Gardaí so that the Gardaí could be effective in ensuring compliance. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it's not just a matter of public health. There's a responsibility to the customers who are vaccinated, who want to go out and won't go out because they feel the pubs are ruining it for everybody, that it might only be a small few, whether it's 4% or 34%, it doesn't matter. People are not confident. They're not confident that they can go into a a pub and feel safe. That's absolutely right, Michael. I, I, I and we're we're seeing that uh, in actually in in we're seeing that in people voting with their feet because they're they're um, uh, they're unsure. They're they're a little bit afraid now. That part of that is you know there has been a reasonable hype in the media uh, in relation to the increased numbers. So people are uh, again a little bit more cautious. But there is a there is a small cohort out there. That is, is is ruining it for themselves, even though they don't know that they're ruining it for the rest of the sector. But they're also ruining the, the potential opportunity mm. uh, for socialisation, uh, so, socialisation for for the public, because it creates uh, an uncertain situation with the public. Tell me what should happen uh, if I want to go for a pint in your pub tonight, Parik. Uh, what will happen when I arrive at the door? Well, essentially, the two things that uh, are very important that should happen is that your COVID cert should be checked 
that's number one and your contact tracing details should be taken for um uh, for uh, contact tracing purposes, so okay. your, your your phone number. If you're in a group, uh, it, it is only necessary for the contact tracing details to be taken for one in the group. And it, it is as simple and as difficult as that. Mm. Uh, and, now, what, and what, what does that, that mean that itself? Uh, I mean, when you say my COVID search should be checked, uh, if I show you a piece of paper and walk by you, is that okay? No, there, there, there's there's there, there's two methods of of um, checking. One one is that. Uh, it can be your COVID cert that you're fully vaccinated mm. or it can be a, a letter from your doctor saying that you've had COVID in the last um, six months and mm. you're recovered. It can be, it can be uh, a paper-based. Uh, it can be, um, it can be on, on, on your phone. Mm. And if the customer is not known to you, the publican, then you should double-check by getting uh, ID to ensure that it says uh, it says it is what it says on the tin. Mm. In other words, that if the COVID cert is saying uh, it's for Pori Criven, you don't know Pori Criven. Mm. You should actually look for uh, ID, whether it be my my um, my uh, passport mm. or my driving license uh, to to verify. And, and, so, and so so so, but, but, should, but should, should, should I scan? the COVID search? It's, it's not, it, no, in, in actual fact, it's not a requirement to be scanned because if it's, if it's paper-based, it doesn't have to be scanned. Uh, it's, it's that you have to verify that it is what it is. Now, you have to, and, and, and the strange thing is that you have to keep two separate records. You, the, the record for contact tracing purposes mm. and the record for the COVID search have to be kept separately, and that's down to the famous data protection legislation. Right, so when, when I... <laughs> Uh, arrive at the pub and I show you my COVID cert and then I show you my ID to prove that I'm the person who that COVID cert belongs to. Uh, you should be taking out a, a pen at that stage or opening up a, a computer and asking me for my telephone number. Correct. Now, in, in a lot of cases, if you have, a, if you have pre-booked, uh, if you have pre-booked, they'll already have that from your pre-booking. Uh, so it, it's not necessary in that respect. So it's just that I it's done to- earlier, but it has to be done. It has to be done, yes. Right. And do you believe that that's what's being done in 96% of pubs? I believe that it's been done in the majority of cases. To the letter like that, though? I, I think there are, sti- there, there are still some that are maybe not doing it absolutely to the letter. Uh, but, you know, the bottom line here is that the main, the main things are that the COVID certs are, are in place and that you have the contact tracing details. And there are some still, unfortunately, that are not complying. Uh, we've been very clear that full uh, compliance is required. Full compliance should be in place. have to point out that we are not a regulatory authority. Uh, we, we can only advise our members. We can only exhort our members. And we have been doing that right from the 15th of March uh, last year mm. uh, in, in very difficult circumstances. Okay. But but, but, but do you accept that. that do you accept that there's a lot of your members uh, who or there's some of your members who aren't doing it at all uh, there's a, a lot of your members who are doing bits of it and there's probably lots more of your members uh, who might do all of that let's say on a Monday afternoon but don't do it on a Saturday night no I, I think the experience would be uh, that it's it's uh, for those who are doing it they're doing it right and they're doing it consistently uh, that's that's certainly the experience a lot of the checks that have been done have been done on a Saturday night so it's it's not that the checks are being done at 10 o'clock in the morning on a, on a on a on a Monday or a Wednesday a lot of the a lot of the regulatory checks have been done 
over the weekend, uh, into the evening, into the night. So, no, I don't accept that there's a lot of people doing it uh, on a Tuesday and not doing it on a Saturday. You know, the, the figures show, and, and, you know, the figures from government yesterday show that this was, you know, by and large, uh, being done uh, to, to quote... To, to quote the um, the assistant secretary in the department of the Taoiseach, there is a high level of compliance. Right. Uh, if people aren't compliant, if pubs aren't compliant, uh, in, in your case as the VFI CEO, uh, what would you like to see happen? Fines? Close them uh, by stop? Being, uh, applications uh, for renewing licences uh, from being successful and or temporary closure orders uh, because well, people aren't happy and I think if the problems continue people are going to demand that the pubs close altogether there, there's a there's a suite of um, there, there are a suite of options available under the legislation uh, including uh, fines and, and the fines are substantial uh, there, there is then the suite of options uh, in terms of temporary closures and there's the ultimate sanction of uh, an objection to the renewal of a license. And I've seen a small number of, uh, of objections to the, you know, license renewal happens in September. Mm. I've seen a small number uh, of objections to the renewal of licenses uh, this year. Uh, you see, the other thing about sanctions uh, is that they do take time. Um, so, you know, if places have reopened in the last number of weeks, Sanctions do take time in the sense that there's a, there is due process. Due well, process has to take Well, for pay. people who are worried about it, then that's not going to work because the thing is that we don't have time. I mean, I, I'm sure, Parik, you're looking at the papers like the rest of us this morning and seeing that the number of deaths are going to increase and that's going to be driven by deaths in nursing homes uh, again. There isn't the time for this type of complacency, even e- even if there's no ill intent involved. It's too no, serious. I, I, I agree know. with you, Michael, yeah. that there isn't the time, but unfortunately... Uh, due process, uh, due process is due process, and well, no people might pe- pe- people might think it's better to close the pubs though than to wait uh, and see people die as a result. I think the issue, the very clear issue that was coming across to us yesterday uh, from uh, the senior officials, particularly in the Department of the Taoiseach, uh, was that the main area of concern right now is the 19 to 24 year olds. Uh, the, the the rise in infection in, in the graph of the rise in infection uh, in that cohort is vertical, uh, and over twenty percent of that cohort of the population are not vaccinated. Mm. Uh, th- that is that is their main concern, and it's you know what they've asked us is to work with them both in terms of getting the message out uh, and not just not just to our own members, but to the public as well. And that's where their focus is. That's where the the, the, the officials' focus uh, is. It's on those, that cohort of, of uh, 19 to 24-year-olds. Okay. Well, we hope uh, that uh, there will be um, some reduction in uh, the numbers uh, and uh, that there won't be uh, any more reports uh, along the lines that we've all been hearing and experiencing, uh, for that matter, where places aren't asking for these COVID certs. Uh, but we leave it there for the moment. And thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Parik Cribben, Chief Executive of the VFI. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, a couple of questions uh, for young women listening uh, to us uh, this morning. The first one, are you pregnant? If you are pregnant, are you vaccinated? 
And I'm asking those questions because I think a lot of us understood the hesitancy with pregnant women about getting vaccinated and why an awful lot of them didn't get vaccinated. Of course, the advice has changed over time and that probably has helped to confuse the situation. But the advice now is very clear that if you're pregnant and if there is no other reason for not getting vaccinated, you should get vaccinated. And we heard the sobering news on the programme yesterday, a report from the Health Protection Surveillance Centre, which told us that there were 35 pregnant women who were admitted to intensive care this year. None of the 35 women were fully vaccinated. One of the women was partially vaccinated. The 34 women remaining were totally unvaccinated. Almost half of these women received invasive ventilatory support were put on a ventilator to help them breathe. The average length of stay in the ICU for these pregnant women was 13 days. One of the women spent 77 days in ICU. Uh, let's uh, talk uh, to Dr. Finn Vola Armstrong, a consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning, Dr. Armstrong. Uh, they're sobering statistics, if ever. Um, good morning, Michael. Yes, uh, very sobering statistics, actually. And I know it, the advice was pretty confusing at the start for women, but I think you're you're very right in saying that it's very clear now that we recommend that all pregnant women are now vaccinated against COVID-19. Um, it's the best way to protect you and your baby from COVID-19 is to get the vaccine. Um, we recommend what's known as the messenger RNA vaccine, um, and they are the Pfizer and Moderna are the two most common ones available to pregnant women here in Ireland. Um, and you can get the vaccine at any stage now of the pregnancy, um, either pre-pregnancy if you're undergoing fertility clinic, or you can get the vaccine um, postpartum if you already have an availed of it. And we know that it also um, doesn't affect breastfeeding either. So I know that had been a concern for some women as well. Has there been any evidence of any adverse effect on the pregnancy as a result of a COVID-19 vaccine anywhere in the world? Certainly not against the COVID-19 vaccination. I mean, as you probably know, the initial trials on the COVID-19 vaccination didn't include pregnant women, and that's kind of a historical kind of ongoing um, issue. The new trials do include pregnant women, but actually even before the results of those trials are published to date, we have over um, almost a quarter of a million pregnant women have been vaccinated and the two largest studies are mainly from the USA and the UK. And these women have shown no safety concerns have been identified throughout this study. Um, there's not an associated increased risk of miscarriage. There was no associated increased risk of birth defects or stillbirth. And there was no associated increased risk of preterm birth. Um and there was certainly, I know there was some query as well as to whether COVID-19 vaccination um, affected fertility. And certainly these studies of these over a quarter of a million pregnant women showed that there was no um, evidence to show that COVID-19 vaccines affected a woman's fertility either. Um, what we do know, though, is that those women, um, at pregnant women at present who become COVID-19 positive are becoming more acutely unwell and higher numbers of unvaccinated women, as you mentioned, there are requiring high dependency and intensive care unit um, or care. We are seeing in increasing numbers of women presenting here at Charlie Lady of Lourdes Hospital with COVID-19 infection. And uh, this can be extracted across the other maternity units. Certainly our colleagues in the Rotunda and the National Maternity Hospital have also reported an increase in numbers of women presenting with COVID-19 infection. And um, the larger maternity hospitals in Dublin have also reported increased numbers and in having to transfer their patients out to intensive care units for high dependency care. 
And so that is a worrisome um, statistic that's um, ongoing at the minute. Are you seeing pregnant women who need hospital care who have been vaccinated? Uh, at present, no. The most, the majority of women who have our hospital care here are unvaccinated, or as you said, they're partially vaccinated. The, vac- the majority of women who present who have been vaccinated might have a milder form of the virus, uh, Michael. Um, but certainly, those who have needed HDU or intensive care um, um, care have all been unvaccinated or partially vaccinated. And I think that report was also reported in the Irish Times. I'm sure most of your listeners would have read that report in the Irish Times in the last couple of days. I think uh, you probably, uh, I'm guessing at least, that you were probably speaking to a a lot of uh, the concerns that women have when they're pregnant about getting vaccinated uh, when uh, you you started speaking there a few minutes ago. Are they the type of issues that women have? Are they the type of concerns when you speak to them in the hospital when they have COVID? Are they the things they're saying to you that they're concerned about? And well, I suppose the most women, the most things that women are concerned about, I suppose, is the risk of the vaccine to their unborn baby. And I suppose that's what every mom wants to do the best by their by their unborn baby. Certainly, when you're talking about pregnant women, they seem. Do you mean more from the unborn baby's point of view, Michael? Or no, from just from just, just from the women when they come into you and they have COVID. Uh, pregnant women uh, present at the hospital who have COVID. Uh, do you speak to them? I suppose that should be the first question. Do you speak to them? Oh, ask them. Ask. ask oh, the, uh, do, I mean, do you ask them why they didn't get vaccinated? Uh, well, a lot of the fears around not getting vaccinated is to do they were just unsure of the effects um, that it would have on their baby, mm. um, and I think as. As this pandemic progresses, we are learning more and more about COVID-19, but also more and more about the safety of the vaccination. Um, certainly, initially, the pickup of vaccination in pregnant women was slow, but we are also seeing the increase in take-up of the vaccination now over the last coming weeks as well, which is a good sign. Yeah, well... Right now, I can't think of anybody that I could talk to other than yourself, uh, Dr. Armstrong, who would know more uh, about this and uh, what risk, if any, there is to women in pregnancy uh, from getting vaccinated. Uh, I'm sure uh, that... uh, uh, you're very well informed in the first instance that you also care for all of the women who uh, you care for and indeed their unborn children. Have you any doubt whatsoever in your mind that there is any risk to women from getting vaccinated? Well, certainly, I think we just have to look at the medical facts for that, Michael. And certainly, if you look at all of these large studies now coming out from Israel, the, the US and the UK, and certainly if you look at the expert group of bodies, including our own um, panel of experts, the NIAC, which is the National Immunisation uh, you know, Committee, um, I think as well if you look at the Royal College of Physicians Ireland, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists, the, Ameri- the American Society of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists, these societies are all uh, filled with experts who recommend vaccination. And I suppose looking at all of the medical facts that are coming out with this, I think we can say that it is much safer to be vaccinated than unvaccinated at, at present. Um, and it, the vaccination is the best way to protect you and your baby from COVID-19 at, at present. Okay. And we've seen tragic stories as well. People will remember the death of a woman in Derry and uh, I think it was at uh, the funeral her husband uh, appealed to other women to get vaccinated if uh, they were pregnant uh, and he'll be bringing that child up uh, without its mother obviously and I take it that there would be concern for women in that sense if they're not vaccinated I mean the idea of spending 13 days in ICU is very serious in itself let alone 77 days in ICU 
Absolutely. And we know that most pregnant women who become severely ill from COVID-19 are unvaccinated. And this typically actually presents in the third trimester of their pregnancy, so kind of more than 28 weeks gestation. We know that women who have underlying comorbidities, um, such as kind of high blood pressure, diabetes or increased BMI, are also at more risk of this severe illness and are also at a higher tendency of requiring high dependency and intensive care treatment, including intubation and ventilation. Um, the risks of intubation and ventilation, there's a risk for mum, obviously, but there's also risk of preterm delivery associated with this, Michael, and that sometimes we have to make the decision to deliver the baby earlier in an attempt to improve um, the oxygen requirements for mum. So there are other kind of, there are other aspects to the care just surrounding, not just the vaccine, um, not just high dependency intensive and intensive unit care, but there are also um, kind of repercussions following on from that care that may lead to preterm delivery and your baby spending time within the neonatal unit here as well. Um, so there are things to keep in mind as well. So it's not just kind of the risk of developing the illness for mum, but the risk of being unvaccinated, there is a risk there now as well for your baby if you are unvaccinated at this time as well. And that seems to be of preterm delivery. Um, I'm sure you were also aware of, um, uh, in the media there, kind of towards the start of the year, there seemed to be an increase in stillbirth in women that had um, presented with COVID-19 infection in pregnancy. Now, this turned out to be a kind of a rare condition called placentitis, where in six women in Ireland, that COVID-19 infection did affect the placenta and resulted in a stillbirth, unfortunately. Now, there's been no further reports of this. Um, and like I said, these women all kind of occurred within the first six months of this year. Um, so I think the risk of vaccination versus the risk of remaining unvaccinated um, outweigh the, be- uh, the benefits, outweigh the risks. But ultimately, vaccination is recommended in pregnancy. But the decision whether to have the vaccine or not is ultimately up to the woman themselves, Michael. You know, it's mm-hmm. all about informed consent. And certainly we give them the information. There are lots now, there are lots of information on the internet um, from the Royal College of Physicians in Ireland, the Institute of Obstetrics and Gynecology in Ireland, the HSC website. They're all full of information now on the safety of the vaccines in Ireland and the pros and cons of vaccination during pregnancy. Absolutely. Um, but ultimately, it is up to the woman and her partner, obviously, as to whether or not they get vaccinated. Well, look, thank you very much indeed uh, for giving us the information that you've given us uh, on uh, the radio programme uh, this morning. Uh, I'm sure it'll be listened to uh, quite uh, intently because working in uh, the Lourdes Hospital, uh, you'll be known to many of our listeners and indeed respected. Uh, indeed, I'm sure that they'll trust your opinion to a large degree given that you may have brought them into the world or their children into the world as uh, the case may be and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you very much Michael. Thank you. That's thank you. Dr Finvola Armstrong who's a consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to a pay claim uh, for people working in uh, the community and uh, voluntary sector. As you know, the INMO, Forza and SIPTU have uh, set uh, this at 3% uh, and it's because of uh, the fact uh, that these people have not had a pay rise since 2009. Now, we're talking about uh, people who are working in home help and home care and that sort of thing, but it's a lot more than that, uh, actually. If I read uh, from the press release from 
the three unions. It includes care for older people and people with disabilities, services for people with addiction, homeless services and a range of services to children, as well as community development, local employment services, jobs clubs, homework clubs and family resource centres, providing services, the unions say, for everyone from naught to 100 years of age. And the trade unions are also claiming uh, that the workers should be able to collective bargain. As you know, there's been a considerable process long before this government was formed in relation to this issue in 2018. Uh, the former Minister for Health requested the HSE engage with the Section 39 organisations to establish the facts around what cuts were applied during the FMP period. The HSE conducted a data uh, gathering exercise in relation to an agreed uh, list of 50 pilot uh, organisations. I won't go through it all, but an agreement was reached by the parties in October 2018 in relation to a process of pay restoration for staff employed by the 50 pilot agencies. And pay restoration commenced in April 2019 with an annual pay increase of up to 1,000 euros. And an outstanding balance was paid in 2020-2021. A further WRC engagement followed in December 2020 in relation to a final phase of 250 organisations who were identified as part of the earlier agreement. A payment arrangement consisting of three phases was agreed with the first two payments to be made in 2021. And the third and final payments due to be made in 2023. Now, I know Minister Anne Rabbit is due to meet a delegation from ICTU by the end of November to discuss these issues. Uh, Taoiseach Michal Martin speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday, responding to Alan Kelly, who asked about uh, this issue. Let's uh, speak to Adrian Kane, CIFTU's Public Administration and Community Sector Official. Good morning to you, Adrian, and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. The Taoiseach saying uh, that a meeting is to take place uh, towards uh, the end of November in relation to this, but I take it you're running out of patience. Well, it, it just I think you, you gave a great kind of breadth of the, the services that the kind of people that we represent um, provide to this country. And that they certainly, um, they're the kind of the glue of society and they, they, they keep people going who are on the margins of society, etc. I think in turn, that's the first time I've heard that clip, by the way, but... Um, um, the, the Taoiseach is, is referring to quite a small sector of, of the overall um, number of people uh, um, and workers that we're looking at. That That's just Section 39 um, in, in employments. But we will certainly welcome any engagement with, with, with the government. Because the problem that we have is typically, and what we're doing this week is, we're serving claims on thousands of employments in the voluntary and community sector. And the employers that we meet there um, aren't hostile to increasing rates of pay because they know that they're very much out of line with the, the comparator rates of pay in the public service. But the problem is that they don't have the monies to concede the claim. Mm. And the only people who can concede the claim and who fund these agencies in the main is the government. Um and there is this wider issue in relation to collective bargaining um, coverage. And we have one of the lowest in the EU. Um, the the government are in talks with the Congress of Trade Unions and IBEC about extending collective bargaining coverage. And what happens at the moment? Because that means that uh, trade unions would be able uh, to negotiate pay rises. So what happens at the moment? Uh, people obviously aren't getting pay rises. Uh, and is that the reason why? Yeah, I mean, typically what has happened in, in this sector over the years and um, is that we, we, we they, they, they did, by the way, have a pay relationship um, between around 1987 up till the collapse um, of the, in 2009. 
But I, I could paper um, the balls at home with regard to Labour Court recommendations that I have mm. for increases in pay, um, sick pay schemes, pension schemes, all sorts of um, progressive sort of victories that we've won at the Labour Court that have gone in unimplemented because the government takes the attitude we're not the employer and it has nothing to do with us. That can't go on. And all this talk about a kind of new social contract, mm. a new beginning for workers, etc. We, we have to see the colour of the money. Government needs to engage with us. You're not looking for very much. I, I mean, no, uh, there, was all, there was all these cuts and there's been no pay increase since 2009. Is that right? That's correct. Why, why, why just 3% now? I mean, I think the rate of inflation this year is about 4%, is it? The rate of inflation this year is, uh, at the moment, it's 2.8%, and it'll probably be year on year, it'll be 3%. The reason why we pitched it at 3%, which is very modest, Michael, mm. is because that's the pay terms provided in the current public sector pay agreement called Building Momentum, which is due to end at the end of, of next year. Um, and I dare say that, that there'll be a bit of catch-up in terms of inflation, but that's why we've set it at that, and it is very modest. But... Pay is one issue that these people that we have, but a lot of people are on fixed-term contracts. There is virtually no pension provision across the entire sector um, and very little sick pay cover either. So there's, There's a lot of problems in the sector and without the government engaging in some form of collective bargaining form to agree general rates of pay, basic pay provision and sick pay, um, this campaign we launched yesterday will start to gather momentum. And I can see that already in the feedback got from people in the last 24 hours. Okay, Adrian, I have to leave it there for the moment. As you say, it's the start of a campaign. No doubt we'll hear more from you. Uh, But thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Adrian Kane, SIP2 Public Administration and Community Sector Official. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you heard in the headlines, uh, the number of properties available to rent are at an all-time low. Supply and demand uh, always results in uh, an increase uh, in the cost of rent if uh, there's more demand than supply and the inflation is at its highest since 2019. This is according to the daft.ie report. Ronan Lyons is an economist at Trinity College in Dublin and he writes uh, this report. He joins us once again this morning and a very good morning to you Ronan and thank you as always for joining us. Uh, the rate uh, now has increased by 6.8% nationally, 4.7% in Loud, 5.7% in Mead. Uh, we're seeing rents though increase, you say as well, uh, in County Louth by 122% on their lowest point and 128% in County Mead uh, on their lowest point. That, that's right. So if, if you think over the course of the, so the long 2010s, up to the, from 2010 or 11 through to today, um, the uh, what what characterises the rental market? It started in Dublin and then spread to Cork and Galway, and then it spread to the counties around Dublin. And bit by bit, um, it, it it crept all around the country with a shortage of, of rental homes pushing up rents. And what COVID has done is it's it's taken a bit of the Dublin demand and reshuffled it in other parts of the country, um, which we can we can talk about in a few minutes. But in in Loud and Mead, you can see all those steady increases year on year, um, for six, seven, eight years. 
means that if you take uh, need at, at one point in 2011, uh, the average monthly rent was 650 euro a month, uh, roughly, and now it's almost 1500 euro a month. So, so well over twice um, what it had been. And in Loud, uh, similar math, 610 euro had been the, the lowest monthly rent, and now 1350 a month. It's a, an awful lot of money, isn't it? Uh, and you've gone back further than uh, 2010, uh, 11. Uh, you've been looking back uh, to the kind of increases uh, that uh, were put in between 1970 and 1995 uh, when there was very little in the way of increases. Yeah, so uh, this is the thing. And in fact, in the Dublin area, you can kind of look back all the way to the 1940s at, at rents. And in some periods, obviously, you've got wider inflation and you can strip it out and look at, at rents relative to incomes, rents relative to real kind of purchasing power. And we've, we've never seen a, a, a 10-year uh, period like the one we're, we're in still. It's sort of 10, 11, nearly 12 years now of, of rising rents. There have been other uh, periods where rents rose dramatically, but typically they were followed within a couple of years by new rental supply. It's only now... 10 years into a rental shortage that we're starting to see rental supply um, come on stream and even then it's politically contentious people are saying that we shouldn't have new purpose built housing um, uh, for the rental sector um, uh, completed um, there was there was talk of, of, of banning um, uh, professional landlords from, from building new rental homes that hasn't come to pass we're talking about perhaps maybe forty to 45,000 new rental homes in the greater Dublin area over the next five years and they will help change the um, the, the pressure in the market, move it more towards a, a renter's market as opposed to a landlord's market. But from a sort of a mm. national perspective, that's concentrated in, in the Dublin area. Has there been much of a, a change over all of those years in the sense of rent being linked to the cost of living? Because if, if you talk a, about the years from 1970 to 1995, we're talking about a, a lot of recessionary years. And if uh, the economy is being deflated like that, any kind of a, an increase must have been very very hard for people to come up with. That's right. I mean, it was never the case. And of course, you can talk to people who, who bought homes in the 70s or 80s and they'll tell you it was never easy um, to, to meet accommodation costs. But uh, what, what has changed is, roughly speaking, you know, for after 150 years without what you might think of a business model for the country as a whole, in the early 1990s, the country stumbled on or, or came upon, decided on a business model of being a, a sort of a gateway to the European market for, in particular, North American firms. That that turned us from losing population to gaining population. That means more housing need. Um, uh, and also incomes rose. And incomes, if you look at Irish incomes over the last 30, 40 years, they've been remarkably even growth between, say, higher and lower cohorts compared to other countries. But all of that, all that good news means that you need to invest in your infrastructure, your housing. And I think that's where we have been lacking. We haven't been investing as you'd expect a growing country to do. In, in, and in the last 10, 15 years, we haven't been doing that in particular in, in housing. And it's, it's clearly showing in the latest figures on market rents. Okay, it's more expensive uh, to rent in Dublin. That was always the case, but it's uh, not quite... Uh, as bad a, a problem as was once the case or indeed you can turn that in its head and say that the rent has got uh, far more expensive outside of uh, the capital going from what 105% more expensive in Dublin to 80% in a number of years. Yes, this is comparing the average rent in Dublin with the average rent in the rest of the country and uh, what, what, if you think of it as like the Dublin premium 
um, uh, what, what, what extra you'll pay for, a, for, a, for a, a rental home in Dublin compared to other places. And that had crept up bit by bit over the course of the 2010s and Dublin rents were over twice as expensive. And the last 18 months, nearly two years now with COVID, and some of the sting has been taken out of that. Dublin rents have basically held steady and the rest of the country, uh, rents in the rest of the country um, have, um, uh, have, have, have risen more. And, and I, I mentioned that earlier on, if you look at Mayo or Roscommon, um, rents are up 20% year on year and it's about €150 uh, euro in, in the monthly rent. Um, and that's an increase, that's an extraordinary increase for just one year. And it shows you the impact of, of COVID. Small numbers of renters moving away from the Dublin area can have a big impact on these smaller rental markets. If these prices continue uh, to increase at the rate that they are, uh, the demand for social housing is going to increase. Uh, because if you're talking about renting at one or two thousand euro a month, you'd want to be earning an awful lot of money. That's right. And, and, and as I mentioned, we, we have um, an analysis of the, the, the pipeline of new rental homes uh, in, in this report. But of course, it's not the case that market rental is going to solve everything. Uh, it, it has to be part of the solution, it has to be a major part of the solution, but it's really only one of three housing types that the country needs to build. Owner-occupied homes, market rental homes, and what you might think of as social rental homes as well. And just as the the, the supply of market rental has failed over the last 10 or 15 years, so has the, the supply of, of social housing. And what had happened in up until the 1980s, the local authorities were heavily involved in the provision of social housing and there was a lot of money at national level for the local authorities to build social housing. In the 1990s, we kind of switched to hoping the market would do social housing. That's not a great strategy. It didn't work. Um, uh, and uh, we need to return to strong uh, support for those on uh, the lowest incomes in terms of meeting their housing needs. So it's not an either or, it's, it's, it's everything um, that we need at the moment in this housing system. Okay, and how far off are we <laughs> living in a country where we have it all? So, so <laughs> the, 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 good, the good news is, as I say, firstly, that market rental stock is, is, is coming and already um, there are sort of every couple of months there are another few hundred coming into the Dublin market. They're, they're small individually, but collectively they will have a big impact over the next three to five years. That will take some of the sting out, not only in Dublin, but in the surrounding counties as well, in, in Louth and Mead, as tens of thousands of these um, come on stream. That's one bit of good news. The other bit of good news is that in its Housing for All plan, the government did actually commit to switching away from relying on the markets for social housing. And it's introduced a scheme called cost rental, which uh, is, is, is kind of your, 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 your best-in-class type of, of social housing. It's, you, you pay related to the, the cost of, for social housing, you pay related to the cost of building the home rather than trying to factor in a profit. So if, if that works in its trial phase and it gets scaled up, we could be talking about a much healthier housing system in three to five years' time for a politician in the government of course I'd be hoping it's more like three years than five years because there'll be an election coming and they'll want to see some um, some movements before then but things are at least heading in the right direction okay. very slowly Alright, we'll leave it there for the moment Thank you indeed uh, for joining us as always That's Ronan Lyons uh, Ro- beg your pardon, Ronan Lyons, economist at Trinity College Dublin He's the author of uh, that report for daft.ie Now, uh, we're going to have a competition on the programme uh, and uh, we've a great prize for you today. Uh, this will be to caller number five. That's the way they do it, isn't it? Caller number five with the right answer. Uh, the prize is two rotten tomatoes and a banana skin. Uh, the question is, 
Can you guess what these politicians are talking about? You want a no-go area. Um, and and, and that's, that's the point. And equally, equally I make the point that the deputy did say that, you know, who are we taking for fools? Who, who is the deputy taking for fools? Given the extraordinary, repeated and consistent, consistent opposition to housing projects all over the country, denying ordinary people access to housing, to housing development after development, which is rank hypocrisy. That's going on in this house for far too long. There is no road choice to attack any group of funds. And as I said the point, just want to say, the government did agree today that your occupier guarantees the ministers to meet with these funds of legislation. You haven't answered. I think this intervention is totally out of order. You haven't. Well, lots of things are out of is your ministers running in cosy enough to cuckoo funds in the midst of a housing crisis? That's out. It's not true. It's not true. Please. Please. I asked the questions and they haven't been answered. Please. Deputy Alan Kelly. Please. 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 Somebody uh, take an issue uh, at the idea that they were uh, getting their information from uh, the Daily Mail. I don't know what the problem was with that, but not sure what they were talking about. There was a clue in the middle uh, and uh, we're giving the two rotten tomatoes and a banana skin uh, to the fifth correct caller uh, on the usual numbers if you'd like to participate in that. Uh, That's if you can tell us what they were talking about. That's how the country is being run. Um, I think we can hear a little bit more from uh, the National Parliament yesterday and a local issue that was raised by Peter Toby. To stop the process of closing down the most important health facility we have in our county. Well, I'm assured that the HSC um, is clear that the transition of Navin um, to a Model 2 hospital is, is, first of all, driven by patient safety considerations, but above all, is designed to improve the hospital's ability to meet the needs of its population. Um, and also that the future vision for Navin involves more, not fewer, um, services. Um, I'm sorry? <coughs> well, like well, Ennis, like all the other A&Es that were closed around the country. I would suggest you go and visit Roscommon, uh, because the, what I've, the feedback I've got from Roscommon over the last number of years is that the range of services is far better there now uh, than was the case. Uh, and that, 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 that is just uh, issue. and in terms of the service no but it's very important you've said go and visit Roscommon no. uh, I know about the A&E and I think that's I have no issue with you meeting or asking the is it the HSC the CEO the HSC, to meet, uh, uh, with, with, the, you know, with the deputies in the area but I would appeal to the deputy that I've been through this for 20 years of the campaigns which are not always about health outcomes yeah. uh, and about other matters and I, when I I'll ask for the meeting I think we should engage with can you talk to the RCS? Thank you very much, Taoiseach, because they're uh, a different Debbie view. Michael Collins. I will, yeah. Yeah, the Taoiseach saying he'll speak to the RCSI group. Uh, I'm not sure. Was the Taoiseach saying um, it might be better to close the emergency department and the ICU beds in Navin? That's kind of what it sounded like, uh, because he, he was saying it's working very well in Roscommon. Not sure if that's what uh, the Taoiseach was saying, uh, but he was saying uh, that it's been paused for the moment, anyway, as we've been hearing from other politicians. Anne in Drogheda. Thank you for your call to the programme, Anne in Drogheda. Anne says, people need to speak with their feet. If a restaurant or a pub isn't asking you for a COVID cert, then don't give them your business. It won't be long before they change their ways. Thank you, Anne, uh, for your call to the programme this morning. Some WhatsApp messages. Uh, 
listener in touch to say electric scooters are an absolute menace on footpaths with users uh, dressed head to toe in black, usually no helmet, no lights or bells to alert you of uh, their presence until they skim past you. When uh, there are cycle lanes, uh, they should not be allowed on footpaths and Gardaí should be able to give them uh, a fine on the spot. But government, as always, will drag its feet on this and won't do anything until someone is seriously hurt or killed by one of these machines or on one of these machines. Thank you indeed uh, for your call uh, to the programme uh, this morning. <coughs> Excuse me, there is uh, legislation on the way in relation uh, to e-scooters, uh, but um, I think there is a problem with them uh, and there's no doubt about that. Uh, somebody else uh, saying they were just in a, a shop uh, I'm not going to name the shop uh, because I think it's uh, a story that could be told in many shops. Uh, our caller says it was packed and there wasn't a mask in sight. And I asked the lady behind the counter, was she going to serve the people who were in there without the mask? And her reply was, she's not allowed to say anything to them. It's turning into a joke every day as no one seems to have the manners to mask up for two minutes. Thank you indeed uh, for uh, your call to the programme today or your text to the programme today as uh, the case is. Uh, somebody else in touch says, what happens if you've not got a booster? Can you still go into a pub uh, if uh, it's six months after your initial vaccination? Well, as things stand at the moment, uh, maybe that will change uh, when we're being asked to get boosters. I don't know, but I'm sure that whatever decisions are, are being made, uh, we'll continue to see people who do the right thing and we'll continue to see people uh, who disregard uh, the idea of protecting public health. But thank you indeed to everybody who's been in touch with us so far today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, I'm not even sure I uh, can introduce uh, this next item because I'm, I, I must be just totally mistaken, misunderstanding what's happening. But according to the Irish Examiner yesterday, uh, it, it seems as though uh, if somebody moves out of a, a council house in County Louth, uh, it'll be six months before um, somebody else moves in. Um, and in that six months, the council is going to spend €56,443 refurbishing the property. That's a, a, on average, of course. That's 56443. 56, 443. 56,443 euro refurbishing the house between one person moving out and the next person moving in on average uh, and it takes six months before the house is turned around. Uh, let's speak to local councillors uh, Fina Falls, Emma Coffey and Sinn Féin's Joanna Byrne. Emma Coffey, um, can you understand that? No, and it's to be honest with Michael, it's something that we that has come up time and time again in the council chamber in relation to delays. Um, and I ha- and I have to say to you, I don't believe that this is at the fault of Loud County Council. I think it is at the fault of the centralised system that's in place in regards to funding and in regards to standards that have to be met for local authorities. Sure, there's no shortage of money. Well, uh, Michael, I think you're being quite cynical in relation to that. I'm well, not saying that there's... What I would say to you is there is a system that is in place in relation to apply for funding, in relation to approval for funding, and in relation to the turnaround of obtaining that funding. And obviously, you know... But when they get the funding, what do they do with it? Build an extension? 56,000? That's an average price. Uh, It's not an actual price of each unit, and you've stated that yourself. 
in respect of it. But yes, it is 56,000 on average. So you're telling um, me it's a lot worse, obviously, in some circumstances. No, you're actually putting words in my mouth there, Michael. But and that's I, how I averages are made up. I presume uh, some no, houses are, I, are a few hundred. Exactly, it's not, but it's averaged out. In yeah, it's averaged average. between what? Uh, 100,000? No. Between sorry, the few hundred? Michael. What? M- M- sorry, Michael. If you just actually get to the to what the question you asked, it's mm. six months turnaround mm. of Loud County Council. Actually, Loud is actually one of the faster turnaround times, which, you know, six months is even too long. Some councils take nearly up to two years uh, in regards to it. Um, and, you know, the, the system is broken as opposed to the councils trying to get the work on, on the ground. It is a system, a centralised system failure, in my opinion. And in relation to there is far more onerous responsibilities and requirements made for local authority housing than there would be, in fact, for private housing or indeed in relation to uh, housing bodies. Because it's state funded and because it's state housing, there is more requirements in relation to get it, getting it, getting vacant housing to a certain standard. I mean, in fairness to, to Loud County... Oh, hold on, what are, you, what are you talking about? Somebody was living in this house and they moved out and somebody else is moving in and they spent €56,000 on it. But again, I would say to you, Michael, that is on an average... I know, but what did they... Sp- national, over a national figure, sorry, would you... Would like in relation to it, some of these houses, if you, some of these houses, some of the tenants have been living for over twenty plus years. Fifty six thousand. Do you know how much money that is? Do you know what I you would do if you if you if you spoke to a builder or, or, or a developer and asked them what they would do with fifty six thousand? Uh, they'd be struggling to come up. I mean, do you do, do you know how much well, I knew, do, do you know how much do you, do you know how much it would cost? To put, do you know how much it would cost? I disagree with you, given the building costs that are actually. Increasing on a day. Well, tell me, tell me how you t- tell me, tell me how you spend fifty six thousand. Well, I'm not. Like, I I'm not a severe. <laughs> okay. It, it, it's it's go. You go into a house, you inspect it, you look at what the standards that are required legally, and obviously they have to meet those standards in order to ensure standards. that standards. What are you, ta- what are you talking sorry, about? Building what, what? regulations. Sorry, Michael. Yeah, such as such, such as, as building right. Such as in relation to, there's now a requirement in relation to wider spaces for particularly downstairs bathrooms in relation to if there's a need for adaptation grants down the line, that there's there's bigger requirements in relation to it. There's bigger requirements, there's health and safety issues in relation to kitchen spaces, units, etc. that may not have been implemented when the houses were first awarded to tenants, say 20 odd or plus years ago. So they're, they're oh, the that's there's, there's also, that's sorry, just daft. Sorry, Michael. Sorry, 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 Emma. Daft. I mean, you put a new roof on a house for five or six thousand euro. We're talking about fifty six thousand euro. Michael, if you can put a new roof on a on a house in in the current climate, even in the last ten years for five five or six thousand euro, I'd like to know who your roofer is. All right, Um, Joanna Byrne. uh, Do you agree with Emma Coffey? Um, First and foremost, I think what needs to be recognised here is that fifty six thousand figure is. An average figure. So you agree with Emma Coffey? You think um, that I think um, going on the facts of the situation that Lag County Council is in, the average amount spent on the turnaround of a void house is in the region of twenty thousand, and where that spent is in regards to upgrading of electrics. No, the average uh, the, the, the average is fifty six thousand four hundred forty three. 
Yeah, but in general, if, if you look at the recent climate um, of houses that have had to be upgraded, particularly in the area, a lot of them would have been gutted, starting from fresh after fires, um, significant damage done through feudal activity and whatnot. So that's going to raise the average. So is that where the money is going uh, uh, on when the fellas petrol bombed the houses? I, w- I would say it's a huge factor in it, yeah, and particularly in the Drogheda area. Right, well that that, um, that explains it. That's sort of rebuilding, that's gutting the house and rebuilding it. Rebuilding houses, yeah. Right, so that, that's putting the cost of some of these, that's putting the cost of some of these refurbishments up to 100, 150,000. Yeah. So that comes and, back and to all the stuff with the drugs and the criminals and all that right. and that we're paying for, we're paying for their misbehaviour. Absolutely. And that's a major problem. And we're all well aware of that. But in general, the average amount spent on the turnaround of a house is in the region to 20 to 25,000. That's still an awful lot of money, though. It's a phenomenal amount of money. So it is. Um, However, if it needs to be done to get these houses back into stock, it's what needs to be done. And what we need to learn from this going forward, I think, is because of why the investment is so significant in turning these houses around. You look at that report that we're referencing, there's only 18 local authorities in the country that have a planned maintenance programme. There's only 18 local authorities that are upkeeping the mm. housing stock on a day-to-day basis. That's inevitably going to feed well, into the state of a house. Why is this the case? Why would you spend twenty or 25000 or 56000 or 150000 You can understand that now, that maybe fellas have burnt the house down and it's been gutted and you've got to spend a fortune on it and that's bringing up this average. But if, generally speaking, you're talking about 20000 why is that the case? Uh, why is it okay for someone to be living in the house and the windows are falling it's in and the ceiling okay and the but but the council the council doesn't spend as you say they don't have that maintenance grant so that when they move out then they have to spend all of this money that just doesn't yeah. make sense does it? No, it doesn't. It highlights the problem. And in in fairness um, to local authorities, I'm not even sure that this report is painting a current reflection. This was at the end of 2019. Mm. Uh, before the void stimulus package came in, you've seen Light County Council received 747,000 in 2020 for the turnaround of voids. They've received 1.7 million this year. That's going to turn around 92 properties before the end of the year. So I think if you were to compare it after the end of this year, it would be a very different story throughout the country because of the investment government has put into the turnaround of voids. Mm. But if that investment is maintained and it's put into local authorities to give them the resources for planned maintenance, for retrofitting houses. I think you'd be in a very different story in 10 or 15 years' time than when it comes to retenanting houses and the turnaround of houses. But the key is, and it shows you what local authorities can do if they have the resources to do it, and the successes of the voice in this package has proven that. So the investment needs to be maintained, in my view. What's going into the turnaround of voice now needs to go into um, the pot for local authorities to upkeep their stock, maintain their stock and, and have a planned maintenance and retrofitting going forward. OK, let me go back to Emma Coffey. Uh, there's a house uh, near where you live uh, which was set alight a uh, last night in Merhaven and Moor and uh, perhaps that uh, explains uh, what I think neither of us could understand earlier on and uh, didn't mean to be taking issue with you but it did seem like a, a, an awful lot of money and as I said at the outset I, I, I thought there was something that I hadn't uh, considered, uh, but uh, when we look at uh, this amount of money, it doesn't make sense that people are living in ramshackle uh, accommodation to the extent that when they move out, it's going to cost so much to refurbish it. I absolutely agree with you, Michael. And you know, this is something that as councillors up and down the country and in Loud County Council, 
we have called on central government to give a specific uh, funding for maintenance. Um, you know, there's quite age, age stock in Louth County, particularly in the two major towns. Um, and that, if we, we don't, like, I mean, I'm, I'm sure Joanna and myself and, and the other uh, 27 councillors, I mean, a big part of our representation would be issues in regards to, uh, say, windows, doors, um, you know, heating issues in regards to tenant properties, local authority properties that are, you know, as I, I mentioned, the 20 plus uh, owned in relation to it that wouldn't have met the standards that are there now. Uh, I would agree wholeheartedly with Joanne, Joanna there in the sense of that we do need a fund for retrofitting uh, and we do need a fund specifically for maintenance. Um, you, you can't expect the council to be, which they are already doing, a loads and dishes on it. You know, in the last say, 18 months, we've had a huge increase in new bills of local authority housing. But, you know, it's it's nearly at the expense of maintaining the the existing local authority housing uh, in regards to it. Uh, the voids, I, I would agree, like we've, two, we've nearly close to 200 houses in the, in the last two years that was vacant properties that would be um, back online within two years, which is something that we uh, as councillors have always been shouting about. And finally, the government has given specific money uh, and lump sum money in relation to it. And in fairness, tight turnarounds, which Loud County Council has met. But the, the, it's, it's as plain as the nose on, on everybody's face. What we need in, in regards to making sure that the 56,000, that the two-year uh, waiting list of getting houses mm. back online in some local authority, we need a specific maintenance funding allocation to each local authority. Okay. And that's, and that's what well, I'm it would be much better to bring it down to the €7,000 that they spend in Mead on average, which still seems an awful lot if somebody had already been living there. Uh, but uh, undoubtedly, uh, uh, as uh, we've been discussing, it's a result of uh, these petrol bombs and such like uh, that's bringing this uh, right through the roof. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment though and thank you both indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Emma Coffey is a Fianna Fáil councillor and Joanna Byrne uh, a Sinn Féin councillor. Thanks uh, to David uh, Toomey who said he was appalled by my lack of professionalism, uh, uh, my tone, uh, arrogance and inability to allow Emma Coffey, I take it, to answer the questions. He says you wouldn't get away with that on national radio. Uh, it's no way to behave. Uh, thanks, uh, David, uh, for that. But I just couldn't believe that 56,000 would uh, be a credible figure. Uh, I think we've had a, an explanation to that. Uh, and uh, I'm probably going to get uh, even more animated at the idea of us uh, going to work on a morning to pay taxes so that we pay for the fire services, which isn't included in this. We pay for the ambulance services. We pay for the Gardaí. And now we pay 56,000 or 100 or 150,000 uh, to refurbish these houses that are petrol bombed by these drug gangs uh, that are living in our communities. Uh, thanks uh, for your text to the programme today, though. Michael Reed on The British government is expected to trigger Article 16 of uh, the Withdrawal Agreement. There is much concern. Yesterday, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, told an Oireachtas committee that if this happens, it will come not just after the never-ending negotiations over Brexit, but also after all of the effort by the EU to facilitate the British through conceding to concession after concession. And unfortunately, the British government has responded to those efforts by effectively banking concessions and flexibilities and looking for more. 
um, uh, and giving very little recognition uh, of the extent to which the European Commission has moved uh, in an effort to try to respond to, to the issues and concerns that they got in Northern Ireland. Um, and, you know, the issue of the ECJ in, in, in many ways has been an issue that is being prioritised in Westminster. Um, um, it's not been an issue uh, uh, that has been a priority in any of the discussions that I've had or that the Commission has had in Northern Ireland. But as unreasonable as that may seem, it is expected that the next step for the British to take is to trigger Article 16. If the British government decides to formally set aside elements of the protocol using Article 16 as a, as a facilitator for that, uh, um, um, I believe that the that the EU will see that as an act of bad faith. Bad faith that the Minister says will have consequences. Uh, it's going to impact negatively on the relationship between the EU and the UK and also I think put a lot of pressure on the relationship between the UK and Ireland as well. But the British game is to play hardball. Minister Coveney warns this is a dangerous game. But as long as the British government keeps asking for the EU to 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 deliver the impossible um, because every time there's a concession or a flexibility shown they look for more and more and more uh, and I think that the that, that uh, if that continues to be the approach the, this is a negotiation that's going to run out of road. Damien McGinnity of Border Communities Against Brexit joins us. Good morning to you Damien and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, the last statement from the Minister there about it running out of road uh, really doesn't uh, do anything to instill confidence. No, it certainly doesn't. And I think tomorrow um, is, the, is the kind of the half deadline that, that, that we are seeing. Um, I think uh, Commissioner Sofkovic is in London meeting uh, Lord Frost tomorrow. Um, and there's some speculation at that meeting. Um, Commissioner Sofkovic will be outlining the measures that the EU plan to take in the event that the UK unilaterally trigger Article 16. Yeah, and Leo Radker was uh, saying yesterday uh, that uh, the government is dusting off uh, the plans for uh, no-deal Brexit. Yeah, it looks very like it. Um, you know, this is this is unbelievable that we are in a situation we have come through. Ireland and border communities has come through five years of uncertainty, um, up and down, highs and lows and talks. We got an agreement. It's an international agreement. It's a, an agreement between the EU and the UK. You know, um, everyone on this island is um, is doing well. Business is open again after COVID. And we have seen in the last um, 24 hours, Almanac, the uh, Craigavon-based pharmaceutical company, are going to create over a 1,000 jobs on this island in the next 18 months. We have seen this morning where Marks and Spencers have announced that they're going to source uh, food and food products on the island of Ireland. So it's a good news story for people who are in business on the island. We have seen a 60% increase in trade north-south in the first nine months of this year. Um, So for us to go back to a no deal with all of the negative potential consequences for this island economically and particularly for people living in border communities it's just quite unbelievable Mm. It's a threat and it's a real threat Uh, but how far away uh, are those consequences Uh, because uh, there's a number of hoops to jump through. Uh, The British in the first instance would have to give a a month's notice uh, that they're going to uh, invoke Article 16 
Yes, and then you, you get into all of the, the legal mechanisms that are contained within the withdrawal agreement, and there are many. Um, it appears, though, that, that the trade and cooperation agreement is a, a faster way that the EU could take some uh, sanctions, for example, against the UK on trade if they, if they decide to go down this route. And that could take many forms. It could, be, it could mean that, for example, all trucks that enter the EU, and particularly at, at Calais, uh, and in, in Rotterdam and other places, and that, that would create huge problems for the UK wanting to get goods out to the EU. Uh, we have called, um, and we have been uh, in touch with Commissioner Shevkovic and with Congress uh, people in the United States, that if, if this gets much worse, that what we would like to see is much firmer sanctions, for example, a 30 or 40% tariff on UK cars and trucks, mm. because the EU needs to stand up here. The Yes, the EU have been flexible. They have given concessions. And as we heard from Minister Coveney, the the British government have banked all of those. This is an international trade agreement. You also need need to remember there are a million Irish citizens living in the North. And we're also EU citizens. So, uh, you know, the EU, we would expect the EU to stand up for us, for its citizens. Yeah, um, it's a dangerous game of it's a dangerous game of chicken, uh, and I don't think anybody is expected to blink at all. Uh, but uh, maybe uh, there's hope that diplomacy will win over. I, I imagine I'm not sure how, what that means or how it, it will work, but I, I imagine that diplomacy will win over because there is the option as well that one side or the other can say I've had enough of this uh, and just call the whole thing off. That's right, yeah, and, and that's a real possibility that this could happen. But diplomacy can only take us so far. We must remember the protocols of compromise. You know, it takes away our rights as Irish citizens, it, it removes us from access from structural funds and many other things. And the people in the North will remain. They could have said, you know, we, are, we don't want any part of any agreement that doesn't keep us fully in the EU, but we recognise that we live in a, in a society mm. that's still politically divided. We recognise that there needs to be mutual understanding and we recognise the need for compromise. Mm. That compromise was firstly the backstop that then morphed into the protocol. And it's, and the, the, the critical thing about all of this is about preventing border infrastructure on the island of Ireland. The North remains in the customs union and in large parts of, of the single market, particularly the single market for goods. It's and time, though, for, this. It's time for Europe uh, uh, to rally together, isn't it? Uh, and... Uh, to show solidarity with uh, the Republic uh, and to heap so much pressure on the British government or on the British people, rather, uh, because of the actions of the British government through sanctions and fines and uh, trade war and uh, to protect all of the European states and to leave the British people in a state of crisis that will force an election and a change of mind that way. Unfortunately, we're almost in that position. And, you know, when you look at at the the UK is, what, the fifth or sixth largest economy globally. The North is 2.8% of the UK population. And, you know, it's quite unbelievable that the UK economy, which could suffer very significant economic pain if Mm. if what we have talked about happened, for a region that's 2.8% of its population. But never forget, the majority of the people live in the North, the majority of the politicians in the North support the protocol. And so does the American president, of course. Of course he does, very much so. 
um, and he has been very strong. And and like the, we see a summit going on at the moment in Glasgow. The previous summit that w- was held in Cornwall, the, the American administration issued a demarche, which is a diplomatic notice to the UK government days before that summit in Cornwall, because they were so concerned how the British government was behaving over the protocol. Okay, well. Um, won't be over until the fat lady sings. Uh, but uh, where where this is going, uh, uh, nobody knows. I suppose uh, it's going in the wrong direction at the moment. Uh, but hopefully there'll be a few twists and turns. So Damien, uh, thanks as always for joining us on the program this morning. Not at all. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Damien McGinnity of uh, the Border Communities Against Brexit Group. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, uh, back uh, to uh, the cost of refurbishing social housing. 56,000 on average in County Louth, uh, which is uh, being driven through the roof by houses being gutted, it seems, following petrol bomb attacks uh, and uh, coming up with that average price of 56,000. So maybe they're spending 100 or 150,000 or more uh, getting uh, these units back into use. And it seems uh, that that's uh, before you've the guards, the fire service, uh, the ambulance service and everything else that's uh, involved in these attacks. Two fire units uh, were at uh, the scene of a, a blaze in Merhebana Moor around 10 o'clock last night uh, at Schlieve Foy Park, uh, a house it, it seems was set alight. Colin Lamb is uh, the Assistant Chief Fire Officer with Louth County Council Fire and Rescue. Good morning to you, Colin, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, and uh, uh, Am I right uh, that you're working off uh, the assumption that this was a, a case of arson? We are not, not aware of anything, Michael, at the moment. Um, we were alerted to the call last night at 10pm and when we arrived in the scene, the front door of the property was well alight. Um, we committed two crew members and breathing apparatus with a hose reel and we extinguished the fire and we ventilated that property and the adjoining properties. It looked like a, a very serious fire in photographs that I've seen. Absolutely, yes. Our, our guys were well equipped and handled it well uh, and we... Well, they, as I say, in attendance at 10pm and we left at 11.50. OK, at that stage, uh, I take it the house was gutted? I was well late and in, in poor condition when we left it, yes. OK. And handed, handed the back over to the forensics and Garishi Econa. Uh, and there's the very serious cost of, of, of all of this uh, and indeed tying up emergency services uh, because uh, you could be needed elsewhere for that matter. But there is also, of course, the risk to life. Uh, people can die uh, as a, a result uh, of house fires uh, and all the more concerning if uh, they're intentionally set alight. Yeah, absolutely. A fire is, is detriment and can cause serious Serious injury to, to people, serious injury to property. So absolutely, Michael, totally agree with what you said, yeah. And nothing unusual uh, about a petrol bomb attack on a house in County Louth. Uh, Drogheda has seen many of them. Uh, and as you say, there's no certainty about what happened in Mahavon and Moore last night. I think the Gardaí are suspicious that it may have been an arson attack, but it's not the first attack in Dundalk. If that turns out to be the case, indeed, it's not the first fire in Schlieve Foy. There was another house set alight, it seems, in the last week or so. Yes, yeah, we were aware of that, surely. Uh, again, we are not aware whether it was a petrol bomb attack. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say we arrived at, at 10 o'clock, um, extinguished the fire. We were not aware of, was there any accelerant 
on the house we just extinguished the fire and, and left the, the scene over to the Gardaí OK but like all of us uh, you'll be hoping that that's not the case uh, in, in, indeed uh, congratulations uh, to your crews uh, for the good work uh, that they did in Merheaven and Moor last night and uh, thank you Michael we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, terrible to think uh, that, that well we haven't had too many uh, of uh, the type of that behaviour in Drogheda recently uh, that uh, we're hearing about it uh, now kind of continuously or at least uh, we've heard about a couple of them but I don't mean to overstate it uh, in uh, Dundalk and indeed uh, we heard uh, the local councillor Kevin Mean and uh, suggest that this uh, could have uh, been the start of a trend last week. Uh, Greg in touch with us uh, on WhatsApp today. Greg says he he got a a quote to adapt a bathroom in a bungalow into a wet room for his father. He was given a quote of €30,500 and he says that was with the grant that was available to his father. So surely a job like that doesn't cost that amount of money. Thanks, uh, Greg, for that. Uh, it's, sure, it's a, a complicated job, but it is a, a lot of money, isn't it? Uh, there's no doubt. Uh, Bernie in uh, touch with us uh, to say uh, that um, there's too few raw materials uh, and that is pushing up uh, the price of building in this country and leading uh, to the cost, uh, the exorbitant cost uh, of a building. Anne is in Balbriggan and Anne has been in touch with us about electric bikes and scooters as well being driven on footpaths and I, I take it that's uh, from the earlier call as well Anne uh, and uh, indeed I see um, that the National Council for the Blind are very concerned about the scooters. Uh, we may hear about more about that uh, throughout the day but Anne tells us uh, that she uh, lives on the main street in her town and she came out onto the footpath to go to her car and was very nearly knocked down by a big electric bike. She says that the electric scooters are also a danger and it just isn't fair on pedestrians. She points out that it's not just kids on these either, that many adults are are now using them to get around and something should be done about them being driven on footpaths. What is it that people think it's okay to drive on footpaths? I I don't really know if I get that, but... uh, there's obviously uh, something missing. Um, I think, you know, they expect you to get out of the way sometimes, let alone <laughs> not get out of your way or continue to do it. Why on earth that they would drive in the footpath in the first place is beyond me. Uh, Sarah in touch with us as well. Sarah says uh, the cost of living is pushing people to the pin of their collar at the minute. The cost of fuel in particular is really crippling households and uh, the government needs uh, to step up and introduce measures that will ease uh, the pressures on people. Things cannot continue the way they are. People are being crushed financially on the basics. And Tommy in touch with us too. Tommy gets the final word today. He says he can never envisage a time where he'll be able to afford to buy a house of his own. He's buying on his own uh, and pre-COVID was there was a slight possibility before COVID uh, of him being able to do a fixer-upper but post-COVID and after many couples moved back in with their parents to save they're now snapping up cheaper houses and pricing Tommy and others like him out of the market. Sorry to hear that Tommy but thank you for telling us. That's our programme for today. God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Goodbye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. 
From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.